you are now entering the Podglomerate. Welcome to Plus 7 Intelligence, the show about how games impact people. My name is Chess. We've all heard that stereotype about games. They rot our brains and hinder our social skills and whatever the case may be. Today's guest flips that stereotype on its head and uses games to help people day in and day out. His name is Josue Cardona, and he is one of a growing crew of therapists and counselors who use video games to help people improve their relationship, or handle their struggles. Let's get into the interview so he can walk us through how it works. I'm here with Josue Cardona. He is a mental health clinician and a podcast host. He actually has three shows that are all part of his Geek Therapy Podcast Network, which is a group of shows about psychology and geeky topics and uh, mental health work. So welcome to the show, Josue. Hi, Chess. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. So what inspired you to start Geek Therapy? Well, a few years ago, I was an intern before I I had my clinical license. And I worked in a program with children, very small children, about ages 6 to 11. It was an after-school therapeutic program. And kids that age, kids most ages, they like video games. They know video games are... And this particular location had a Nintendo Wii that the supervisor prior to the one that uh, was my supervisor had bought. And I don't know if they used it or not. I just know that it was in there somewhere. And I asked my supervisor if I could use it to do some group work with the kids, even for just social, um, social group work. And she said, no, she said, absolutely not. I, I don't think that's a good idea. I don't think that video games should be used in this setting. I don't, um, you know, I don't, I don't have good feelings about video games. You shouldn't do that. And so in kind of an act of rebellion, I, I went home and I made a, a website where I set up a whole bunch of uh, uh, links, uh, essentially a curated website with a lot of information about positive uses of video games. So links to research and links to all sorts of articles just to show her that she was wrong. And I don't think I ever showed her that website, but it, it, it was the basis of what geek therapy eventually became. That's great. So can you give an overview of like what kind of counseling or therapy that you do? Sure. So I am a mental health counselor. So that means I have a master's degree in mental health counseling. And that is a clinical type of therapeutic work, right? And it is similar to to other fields, right? So there's a lot of confusion around you know, clinical social workers and marriage and family therapists, clinical psychologists, and a lot of the work is very similar. And I specifically have training in a school called the, or a school of thought known as rational emotive behavior therapy. So over the years, I've done everything from in-home uh, work with families, I've done in-school, I've done private practice, and outside of being a, a licensed clinical um, mental health counselor, I've also done behavior coaching, which is less clinical, but still behavior focused. In your podcast, you you talk about a lot of different ways that you have used video games as part of your counseling. I find them all very interesting. So can you talk about some of the ways that you use video games as part of your counseling? Sure. So over the years, I've come to develop 
a sort of, I, I think of it as a mindset, right? And it's kind of what guides my, the type of things we do at Geek Therapy, which is essentially to celebrate how we can use geek culture to help people in different ways. And, you know, that extends beyond therapy. But in therapy in particular, I, I kind of look at it as three different ways that at least I use it. And, and I talk to other people about using it. This is how I advocate for it. So the first way is to let your client, the person you're working with, kind of geek out. So if they like video games, that's an in to know more about them, know what they're into, share in something that they care about. They care about it. Um, it's worth it to be important. Uh, it's worth for us to care about it also. Because it shows them that they're being supported and it shows us, um, it shows them that we also are interested in the things that they do and the things that they care about. So allowing them to either just talk to you about the video games that they like or experiences that they've had in games, whether good or bad, because in a way that's, that's kind of their language. I mean, Chess, I don't know, I don't know how, how you feel about this idea, but when, when I play a game, I can, I can see myself in the character sometimes, or I can see, things that happen in a game later on in my life. And I, I see the world through the lens of the things that I like. And many times that's, that's video games. And to be able to share that with anyone else and to be able to talk about it and share my worldview with someone feels really, really good. And it's also like a peek into who I am. So allowing clients to do that is, a, I think, an, an incredible way to really build rapport, start building that relationship, show them that you care, and it allows them to also have fun and be invested in the process of therapy. So it's not just boring to them. It actually now involves things that are important to them and, and are an, a key part of their lives. A second way is for the therapist to geek out. So to embrace the type of thing that they really like. So I, I love gaming. So in my private practice, I had various video game systems. I had objects and toys that were related to video games. It's a part of who I am. And it actually attracted some clients who were also into video games. It allowed them, whether or not we ever talked into video games, just the idea that they knew that I was into it um, made them feel more comfortable to come to me. And I could use video games in different ways, maybe to break the ice or maybe just to, you know, I've had kids who were just, they didn't want to talk at all. So it's like, well, you know, let's not talk then. Let's play a game. And that could be co-op Minecraft, for example, something where we're just walking around the world, showing each other things. And there I'm in my element. I know exactly what I'm talking about. I can kind of control the environment depending on the game. Um, an example of that is I had a kid who kind of liked to play video games. So I would bring in cooperative games where we could work on something together. Or um, I would bring in maybe a fighting game and I could control how I played the game to see how they reacted to losing or how they reacted to winning, things like that. So I'm much more in control if I'm in my element. And then the third way would be when both of you are really into this, right? So if both of you are geeking out about video games, that's, I, I think that some magic can happen, you know, because you're talking, you're speaking the same language, you're talking about not only games in the context of being a game, but also as part of your life, part of an experience. And it's different when you're just allowing the client to talk about something that they care about, when it's also something that you care about. And you can connect and go deeper and really, really, really go into, you know, conversations that can lead to, to things that are maybe the reasons why a person is coming into therapy. Um, but 
anybody who's ever geeked out with anyone about anything understands what this could be like. And then to do that through a therapeutic lens, where at the same time you are addressing behavior, where you're trying to reframe the way that a person is thinking so they, they can do things in a more healthy way, um, it's, it's fantastic. And I try to encourage therapists to, to have a passion for, whether it be games or whether it be something else, to try bringing that into their work and see what happens. In your podcast, you've talked about some ways I found that are interesting that you, some other ways that you directly bring video games as, as part of a way to help people and get people in conversation with you or com- in conversation with other people. Sometimes you talk about game prescriptions. So what is a, a game prescription? So that's an idea that I, I remember reading it somewhere and I remember who, who wrote that first that, when I read it. But I love this idea of being able to, just like you would prescribe medicine you know, to treat something, you can prescribe a game. For example, um, just recently I spoke to a family member and they told me, oh, we're going out as a family to play some games. And I suggested, well, why don't you try some cooperative games? Try doing some things together instead of creating these competitive environments when things are already not so great. And that, those are the type of conversations I would have with my clients. So they had games that they preferred to play, games that, were, that did different things for them. So some people just wanted a challenge. Some people wanted to burn off some steam. Some people wanted to, they were having very intrusive thoughts and they wanted a game that could you know, allow them to take a break. So I would look at the games they had and say, okay, let's, let's see, this one, this was probably too easy. This was probably, okay, this one, this one will keep you thinking about a lot of things. That's probably a good exercise for that. And just in general, the idea that a game can, can bring a lot of benefits, like just social interaction. So it could be, you know, again, teaming up with someone or collaborating or something that is creative. You know, again, Minecraft is a great example where you can build something with other people. So there are different ways to do that. So, you know, it's not an idea of you're prescribing a game to cure an illness or anything like that, but it's to, you know, actually, you know, it's like a plus something, right? It's a plus Mm -hmm. seven to social or plus seven to intelligence, that type of thing. And (laughs) I love, I love that idea. I, I love the, the, the positive effects of, of playing a game, um, are, are now well documented and there's, you know, many more people are behind that. And so while I would never even pretend to say, you know, that here's a game that cures depression, that's a prescription. It's really just suggestions on how to use something that you already care about to, to kind of fill in some gaps in, in your life or, or help in some way. I love the idea that, you know, it's, it's, you're augmenting something. You can help build resilience. You can, you can also practice many things, you know, um, the best way to, uh, create new behaviors or develop or reinforce behaviors is to practice them. And a lot of these things you can practice in an envi- in a very safe environment, such as a video game. Something like frustration tolerance, where you're playing a game that is very difficult and you get frustrated. Well, if in real life you're getting really frustrated, maybe we can create a scenario where you're playing a game that you already like a lot. Maybe let's try upping the difficulty because we know that it's going to get you a little more frustrated, but just try that to see how it goes. And with the game, you can practice the things that we've talked about um, and that you can use in your real life. And, you know, it depends on the client, but there are many different ways to do that. I also heard that you, you actually make games with Twine and sometimes encourage 
your clients to do the same. Can you talk about how you use Twine, which um, for the listeners, it's actually, I've never used it, so maybe you can explain it better. But basically, it's a tool that allows you to easily create interactive stories, a little bit like a a text-based adventure, you know, kind of choose your own adventure kind of games. How do you use that and uh, encourage your clients to make games and why? Yeah, Twine is not the only tool that works this way, but it's essentially an interactive fiction um, generator or tool. So you create, you write some text, and then you have branching paths. And those can also be text. You can, you can do a lot more with Twine. You know, you can add all sorts of stuff. You can have a point-based system. You can have XP, level up, all, all sorts of stuff. But at, at its most basic, you can just have branching paths. So the way I like to talk about Twine is that you can use it to show different perspectives. So for example, imagine having a situation in your life where one thing happened, right? And maybe that's outcome A. Well, imagine what it might have been like if you had outcome B. Or, you know, in a more, that's more of like an empathy exercise for other people to understand what you're going through or a thought exercise to see, you know, to think of other possibilities that maybe you had not thought of before. But in terms of uh, therapy, for example, as a practice tool, you could use it as, okay, so here's situation, uh, here's the situation X, and then you have options as of the way you can react to it, right? And maybe A is the way you've always done things. This is the typical reaction. But B is the new thing that we talked about in therapy and you could and you could use, right? So what do you think the outcome would be if you did A? And maybe that's a negative outcome or the, the reaction from another person would be negative. And B, we can talk about the potential uh, positive outcome. And now that you've created a small game for that, that is something that you can practice over and over again and something that you can rewrite based on what's really happening. And then you can show that to other people to see, look, this is what I go through. These are my options. I tend to go to A and not to B. And there are great examples of, of Twine games out there, one that I always like to talk about, and, and it's probably one of the more um, popular ones, at least in terms of psychology and mental health, is called Depression Quest, where the idea is that you're playing the experience of someone who is actually dealing with the symptoms of depression, and you see the options that are available to, uh, available to them or that would be available to them and then some of them actually aren't because they're currently uh, suffering from the symptoms of depression. So maybe uh, something that someone who is not dealing with depression might seem as the it might seem to them as the obvious choice for someone else um, who is actually you know dealing with depression. They they can't they don't have access to those options. So that's a very smart thing that that game does. But it allows you to play out a story in very different ways with multiple branching paths. You actually listened to the episode where I had Paul Darvasi on, and he wrote about using video games for conflict resolution. And his paper was kind of half half theory, half observation on on what's out there. But you know, you are using video games in kind of a group setting. Would you say that you use video games for conflict resolution? That's a really interesting question. That was a, that was a really good interview, by the way. And oh, that was all him. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I liked a lot of what um, Paul was saying. And, you know, he talked about it from uh, being a teacher, right? And mm. um, I've been in those settings also. And I can see, I haven't used it specifically in terms of with the intent of conflict resolution directly or having a game that's designed specifically for that. I tend to more adapt games that are designed for something else, right? 
So um, I do interview a lot of people or I have interviewed a lot of people who, who use games in different ways. And conflict resolution is one of those things where depending on the conflict and depending on the age and depending on, on who they are, um, there's, there are probably a few different things that, that you could do. Everything from, you know, putting people on the same team or, um, giving or playing a game where people have, um, where you have different roles, right? That are complementary. And, or you could change the rules of a game to make it so that people start working together instead of working against each other. And so I, I don't think it, it's exactly the same type of conflict resolution. Um, there are definitely, I would say I've used games more to help improve relationships. We're only 15 minutes in, but I feel like, I don't know, someone who is maybe skeptical about video games, they might be like kind of scratching their head. And, you know, you've laid out a lot of ways that you're, you know, very directly. Sometimes you're saying that you're basically giving someone a video game as a supplement or part of treatment or counseling. And that might be really surprising to someone who who doesn't have a positive view of games. What, what kind of, where have you seen successes in, in bringing in video games and counseling? And are there benefits that are specific to video games that aren't, you know, that are harder to get elsewhere for counseling? So this this is actually a very large field. The the idea of using video games for for very specific purposes. You know, the the video game industry is gigantic. There the the statistics on who plays video games, whether it's on your mobile phone, on a console, or a PC. You know, so many people play games. Possibly the majority of people, at least in the United States, play games every now and then. And so I I see a lot less. Um, pushback uh on these topics and there are definitely some that i i I like to uh, refer to for example there is a a game that was created by designer jay mcgonigal and it's called super better and the way that this game works is that it's essentially a, a template right it's this platform where you fill out this template and you choose what it is that you want to achieve so you choose the goal you define your enemies or your bad guys. You define your power-ups. And then you play the game. And the game is you trying to achieve, for example, one of the most common examples there is, or actually I'll use Jane's original example, which was that she had a concussion and she had to do certain things to get better. And so she designed this game, this model, to to get better. And so... Her all of the challenges that she had related to that concussion, um, she put them down as as enemy, and then things that she knew were good for her, including um, having a support system and allies, were counted as as power ups. And actually, having an ally is a part of the game. So after years of her uh, having people play this game for free um, on her website, they they've done clinical studies where they've found that using it as part of treatment for depression. Is actually very effective, and I believe the results said that it was as effective as talk therapy. And it's it, you know there's clinical studies you can read about it. It's it's called Super Better, and that is using game design principles and applying them to something that we already do, which is you know counseling, and how we can possibly just make that a little bit better. So it's not um, 
it's not just a game. It's, it's very much, it's kind of like making therapy into a game. And that's where I feel a lot of pushback is where people think that, um, people think, oh, well, you know, you're trivializing a process and really you're reinforcing it with all of these design principles that we know are effective at modifying behavior and increasing motivation. And if you can bring those things into therapy, that is just, I mean, it's a, it's a win-win, you know, it's a win for, for everybody involved. And one thing that I've thought about a lot over the years is how in typical talk therapy, you, you maybe see the person once a week and in some modalities you prescribe or, or give a prescri- um, homework, right? So you assign homework um, for someone to do during the week and maybe they do, maybe they don't. Um, but something that is interactive, something that has a feedback loop is way better than just giving a worksheet or something like that, or just a spoken instruction of, uh, or recommendation of something to do throughout the week. You can actually create an experience that can reinforce the positive behaviors that will lead to the outcome that the client is looking for. So there are, I mean, there's a lot of research going on in terms of uh, video games, so much so that I, I, I don't really keep track of all of it. I mean, I read as much as I can, but there's so much uh, happening. And again, in the work that I've done, I tend to, I don't have any games. I mean, I've used super better in my practice, but I tend to use games in, in specifically the ways that I told you before, kind of using it to connect with people and then going deep into the experience of the game and tying that to the therapy. But there are many different ways that other people are using it. And again, the idea something like super better, which is something that, um, someone who was a game designer, uh, created. She wasn't a mental health professional. And later on with, with input from psychologists, you know, she was able to make it better and apply it specifically to those arenas. So there, there's so many possibilities. But when people ask me, you know, or, or seem to be, um, they seem to not believe it, I tend to point them toward the description of uh, super better. It's made my life a lot easier. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I, um, I'm very familiar with Jay McGonigal's work and I'm definitely going to be having at least one episode about super better when I can get it put together. I guess one question that I had that you were mentioning is, you know, you have your geek therapy network of your shows and then some other shows that you brought on. I guess what I was thinking is this idea of using video games and using other, other ideas and themes and even specific characters from geek culture, the idea of bringing that stuff into counseling and therapy and mental health and stuff like that. How do you see, I guess, how is that kind of movement come about? It seems like, it seems like you've, you've found other people who have kind of started to do the same thing you have. Is it your experience that uh, this idea is starting to catch on and, we're going to see more of it in the future. Oh yeah, it's definitely growing, and and it is not something that I created. I wasn't the first person to mention it. Um, one of the first books that I ever found that really reinforced what my what my newfound beliefs were. Right, these were ideas that I had based on my own sense of, you know, wanting to feel understood and wanting to connect with people, and seeing how much easier it was for me through media and and through the things that I like to consume in terms of television and movies and video games, that I started, I started thinking, well, I think, I think this could work in therapy. And I started trying things out. And then I found the book called Using Superheroes and Counseling and Therapy by Lawrence Rubin. 
and that that book was published years before I I sought out my uh, my degree, and I found other other books that talk about bringing movies into therapy, and it's very similar models. Um, unfortunately, right now there aren't many people, or there aren't enough people talking about what they do um, in like, like we're doing now, you know, with podcasts or YouTube videos. And I want to see a lot more of that because every time I go to a convention and I talk to people about these ideas, I there's always one or two people who come up to me and say like, well, actually, I've been doing this type of thing for years. Or actually, <laughs> last week, I did this and this. And there's it's, it's this funny reaction of, um, on the one hand, well, this isn't new. And on the other hand, like, I can't believe I'm not the only one. There's a, there's a mixture of that <laughs> that I get at mm. these conventions. And it's, it's so, um, it's not only validating, but it's good to hear that other people are doing it. It's great to hear how other people are doing it and sharing their stories. So like you said, the, the network has been fantastic because we, we have a, a one particular show called Rolling for Change. And he's a marriage, uh, the, the, the main host of that show. I'm, I'm, I'm on many of the episodes, but that the main host, he is a therapist, but he's also a tabletop, uh, gamer and he believes that there are you know that people can be transformed by their experiences in games so he wanted to talk about it and i i i'm so glad that he did because now we have an entire podcast where that is the theme people who like we're talking about video games but maybe someone is also interested in tabletop games so you can go visit that that show and hear more about this hear stories about what it's like to use it and conversations with other people who use tabletop games also and yeah, it's, it's growing and the interest from students who are in school right now and want to do this type of thing because they grew up around um, video games or, you know, their, their fandoms are a part of who they are. And the idea that they can actually combine that with their professional work is, is, is um, very appealing to a lot of people. So um, I like to encourage people to kind of you know, bring their expertise from the things that they like. Uh, for example, video games. You're an expert. You're probably an expert at video games compared to most people who play video games. If you are thinking about using it in your work, you know, <laughs> if you're really into it, if you think that you're a fan, um, if you believe, you know, if you if something like the console wars means something to you, you're trust me, you're expert. You're more of an expert at video games than most people. Bring that into your work and see and see what that might be like. And I understand that a lot of people don't know how to do that or where to start. And I definitely see way more options in the future because I'm talking to people who also want to create content about doing this kind of work. And I know that we're not stopping anytime soon. There's, um, there are now six, net six shows on our network and we're, we're talking about psychology and mental health and, and education related to games and geek culture in any way we can. And I, I definitely think that that's going to keep growing. Yeah, that, that's really great. With so many people playing video games now, you know, the generation coming up, like over 90% of them are playing, you know, I tried to uh, warn people that if you don't understand video games, then you won't be able to understand American culture in a few years, I simply agree. by the numbers, because you will then be very much in the minority and video game language infuses pretty much everything. I mean, when you talk to people about of you know a certain generation you know their go-to analogy for accomplishment is leveling up or beating a, a boss you know so you know especially for something like counseling and therapy 
you really got to understand the people you're talking to. Even if you don't really get video games, you got to at least get a passing understanding of it. I mean, I have a passing understanding of reality shows just because that's part of American culture now, apparently. Everybody knows who Kim Kardashian is, right? Exactly. And uh, I've never seen any show or I don't think she's in any movies. I don't know. Never seen anything (laughs) she's in, but I know who she is. And just by, you know, secondhand gossip, I I get uh, all the news and developments, you know. So if you don't have at least that level of understanding about video games, then um, uh, the world's going to be a very strange place in a few years. Yeah, I do. I do. I completely agree that there is a degree of cultural competence that is at least, you know, that's the minimum that you can have or that, that you need to have in order to do this type of work. Um, I think that the point that you're making, right, that in, in general, just to, just to be up to date on pop culture, you're probably going to know something about video games. And I, I agree, you know, very few people don't know what Tetris is, you know, um, that's, mm-hmm. that's one that's pervasive. Everybody can recognize Mario and even some music um, from the game. Pong, right, has has transcended um, mm-hmm. culture. And I think that we'll see more and more of that. Like Grand Theft Auto, people have heard of it, you know. But for, for good or bad reasons, it's, it's part of pop culture. I agree. Mm-hmm. I guess I wanted to go back real quick to a comment you made that um, you said that the video games kind of along the lines of what we were talking about was, you know, video games, they affect your your perspective and they influence your life. You know, the very act of playing them and facing the challenges, you know, especially over time will have an effect on you and will kind of affect how you see the world. And that's kind of one of the underlying currents of this show is how people have been inspired by games and all the unexpected ways that uh, that kind of that experience kind of bleeds over into their real life i don't know i guess i just wanted to to comment that you know i definitely think that that's that's the case and unfortunately i think that a lot of the perception has been the negative or least optimistic side of that people saying that oh well in video games you can just start over and so it's not like real life it's not real challenge. So it kind of gives a negative or kind of a, a small perspective on kind of a limited scope of what you can see when it comes to real life and real challenges. But, you know, I think that if we, if we talk about it more and kind of dig into it a little bit more, we'll see a lot more of the, the other ways, the more positive ways and the more fascinating ways that, that a video game perspective can affect your real life. So one of my favorite things to do is to talk to people about those experiences and those moments that I believe can happen in in very small um, situations in a game. They can happen completely out of context. You know, it's not as literal as, well, I did this thing and I saw myself exactly in the character and then I learned to be a better person or something like that. Right? It doesn't have to be that literal. But there are many experiences like that. And I love hearing stories. I'm curious um, what are some of yours? What are some of your like really positive experiences in gaming that kind of uh, have you believe what you believe now versus somebody who would be you know completely against the idea? Yeah, so it's kind of interesting because I have a lot of stories about it, and kind of the 
kind of the thing that I've realized about games, particularly for me, is one of the great things about games is, you know, you can go through life with kind of delusions about yourself, thinking that you're the best at this or the best at everything. But in a game, you you're kind of forced to come to terms with your own shortcomings, you know, because in real life, you can say, oh, well, you know, if you fail a test, you can blame the teacher. If you, you know, if you get beat by another team, you can say, oh, well, that team has a better coach or, you know, I hurt my knee last summer, whatever. There's always an excuse. But with video games, because it's kind of a contained environment, you're kind of and that environment is usually designed so that there's always a way for you to win, it kind of forces you to come to terms with your own shortcomings. Because if you get beaten, then almost every time it's because you did something wrong. So for me, it's it's something that's kind of therapeutic for me to realize, you know what, I'm not the smartest guy ever. This puzzle beat me. That's just the plain and simple of it. I needed to look up the answer. I'm not the smartest guy ever. I may be good, but I'm not the best. And then from there is the interesting part is, you know, what do I do with that information? You know, do I turn off the game and then, you know, come up with some kind of lie about, well, the game isn't fair? Or do I accept that? And then I do I move on? I'm sure that this whole generation is going to have tons and st- tons of stories about Zelda and Breath of the Wild and the Lynels, the first one you encounter. Uh, if you do it early, which I skipped by the way, completely. Yeah, that was, that was a smart (laughs) thing to do. I was very tempted to do that. When I first encountered that boss, I thought it was the most unfair fight I had ever been in, in a video game ever. That's what I thought. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But that's because I didn't see, I didn't know there were a lot of things that you could do. And if my timing was better. And there are certain methods you can use and stuff like that. But the first time I I fought it, that's that was my thought. I was like, there's no way that I can beat this. But a little bit by little bit, I I decided that I was not going to give up. You know, maybe I was being stubborn or prideful. But whatever it was, I decided that I was going to face the challenge. And so I did. And so I died a lot and I failed a lot. And I used, <laughs> it was actually really funny. There was one attack that he did that I had no idea how to dodge which now I know it's really simple. But basically, I I basically just planned it into my strategy that he was going to hit me and deal me massive amounts of damage at this certain rate. So I basically just planned my whole strategy around, okay, during the rest of the fight, I'm going to deal him damage and avoid everything else. And then during that one time, he's just going to smack me. I'm not even going to bother trying to dodge it anymore. I'm just going to let him smack me. and then And then I'll get up and then I'll get back to it. And, you know, that and that was a great experience for me because since I don't have a lot of time to play games, usually when I encounter something that's really difficult, I I give up or I find a way around it or whatever. But, you know, that gave me a chance that I decided, you know what, I'm going to put in the time this time and I'm going to get it done. And and I did and I beat him. And then it was only a little bit after that that I found the blue Lionel, which is even stronger. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty recent afterwards. So I didn't even have all of my food back or my elixirs and stuff. But I had learned so much, even though I still was taking hits to the face (laughs) on a regular basis, 
I decided that I was going to try the harder one because, you know, that experience of, you know, kind of facing my own failures, digging in instead of giving up, saying to myself, I, I, if I keep my eyes open, I'll see patterns, I'll see a trick, I'll think of something. And that process was very encouraging. So that led to me taking on bigger challenges and so on. There's so many things that you just said that um, are are exactly the type of kind of lessons that we can get from a, from a game and something that we can build upon, for example, in a therapeutic uh, setting, something like, well, in real life, you can't always just try over again immediately, or or the the way to do that isn't as obvious as pressing, you know, selecting continue or starting over. But there's mm-hmm. but many times there are options to try again, right? Sometimes we have to find those options. Sometimes we have to find different ways to do it. The idea of well, that was really hard, and now the second time I approach something like that, I'm way better prepared, whether by what you learned or because you've actually leveled up or you have better gear, right? Again, you can you can bring that into a conversation about something that you're dealing with in the real world. Like, well, if you had to take a step back and you had to level up, you had to um, upgrade your gear, you had to get better armor, what would be the equivalent? Oh, well, you know, maybe I could learn more about this or I could come with this better prepared. You can change the setting. There are all these ideas that in the real world, we can't, uh, it's a lot more difficult to try again as fast as we can in a video game. But if we think about those things that are we're, we're doing in a video game, those lessons are absolutely transferable to our, to, to our lives and to what we're going through day to day. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's exactly what I was thinking was with games, they, they kind of force you to find your own shortcomings because eventually something's going to beat you or get the best of you. And then it's, then it's up to you whether you're deciding whether you're going to look at yourself and see what you can do to improve yourself. And yeah, that's something in my own life too that I found is like, well, I keep complaining about not having any money, but then I'm going and I'm getting lunch at a restaurant on a regular basis. And that's eating my money that I don't have to spend. So why am I can fix that and then I can go somewhere else and I can find something else to fix fix that too and start piecing away at the my own complaints that I have about my life that are partially my responsibility <laughs> yeah or entirely yeah, resource my responsibility it's such a big thing that we can address through games in different mm-hmm. contexts and then once you bring that learning back you're like oh and one of the things that i love is that it's so personal you know even with that lionel battle the we both went about it compl- in completely different ways and yet we mm-hmm. both su- succeeded right and we mm-hmm. both got something completely different out of it um i i avoided it completely i didn't even go up that mountain i didn't even see him and I did something else and I felt really good about it. I felt like I had figured out this puzzle, right? And for you, mm-hmm. it was an experience of having this epic battle that um, you came away at the other side of, um, you know, way better for it. Yeah, I love these types of conversations. <laughs> and, yeah. and having these conversations, like we tend to, you know, what, what we need or, or what's going on in our lives is usually reflected in, in everything that we do. And everything that we see. And so you're playing a game and maybe, you know, again, uh, the resource management thing, like maybe a thought comes up while you're playing a game and related to something that's going on in real life and then vice versa. But if you don't take the time to 
think about those gaming experiences, then that learning can't happen. And I love to be there and help people understand those thoughts and see how they can be applied in other areas of their lives. Yeah, and and these conversations are great too. This uh, it's one of the reasons I started this podcast because you know someone who isn't familiar with games or is pessimistic about games, they probably don't imagine that two gamers could talk about how a game has influenced, improved, and improved their lives. You know, with specific examples. But the thing I've kind of noticed too is that even gamers don't really expect to have that kind of conversation either. That even gamer, gamers themselves don't have a positive, like they're positive about video video games because they find them fun, but they don't think that they're a positive part of their lives otherwise or can improve their lives otherwise. So yeah, I definitely enjoy these kind of conversations too because I think a lot of gamers out there are pessimistic and believe the stereotypes that are about them. We need to be more open and talk about the ways that games influence and influence us and change us and challenge us on a, on a personal level. Yeah, and you know it depends completely on who you're talking to. And I think that as time goes on, just the the same way that there is deep and thorough analysis and and um you know I don't know just bringing up finding things in in a book or in a movie you know, just really intense and deep critique, that's happening with games. And those conversations are happening. And our conversation is just one version of that, right? Many people um, are, are having those conversations. And, and it's great because, like you said, maybe people are, aren't coming to a game for that reason. They aren't coming for some deep insight. But, but if you just take a moment, step back, and think about what just happened, or just talk about it with somebody, those those insights can be very helpful. And I see that g- growing more and more and more. And, you know, games, games, just like movies, just like TV, just like books, just like anything, you know, you, you don't have to, it doesn't always have to be a life-changing experience. Sometimes it's just fun. Sometimes it's just, you know, you're taking a break from something else, so you're doing that. Um, but I think that there are special, you know, there are many opportunities to to look at how this can help you, right? So a lot of people, you know, we're, if we're talking about therapy specifically, we're talking about people who are coming to the therapist to solve a problem, to overcome a, a, an obstacle, you know, to reach a particular goal. And those things already lend themselves very well to, to um, video game talk, right? But mm-hmm. just, you know, talking to people, to someone in that mindset is very different than trying to have a conversation with someone who, I don't know, just like really likes Rocket League. Like it's the most fun sport they've ever played and they just love to, to, to play it. They're not thinking deep thoughts about it. But maybe, you know, catch me in the right mood and all of a sudden I've got all these deep insights into that last game of Rocket League and what it all means. <laughs> so a lot of times, you know, whether it's through news headlines or, or whatever, you know, gaming is kind of associated with addiction or you know just general bad low responsibility lifestyle stuff like that and i think a lot of people whether they like to admit it or not they maybe game too much or they have bad gaming habits they use gaming to escape or 
or something like that. How how can we recognize when a game is part of a bad, maybe a bad habit cycle and start getting these positive benefits that, that you're talking about? So a lot of those positive benefits are happening um, right, with even like minimum um, time playing games. And a lot of the negative conversations about video games, I mean, first of all, I think that they're getting way better. I think that we've come a long way even in just the past five years. I feel like that's part of my job, um, you know, advocating for, you know, positive effects of video games. That part of my job is way, way easier than, it, than it's ever been. But it still comes up. Um, the addiction question is a big question. And um, there's a few ways I, I like to talk about it. Um, in a gaming context, it's like if video games are your side quest and not your main quest, you're good. You know, <laughs> you're still achieving all your main goals. You're still going to work. You're paying that rent. You're, you're feeding your family, uh, feeding yourself, taking a shower, hygiene, all those things. You're still, um, you know, doing all of that. You have time to go on a side quest for a second and come back. That is, that is fine. And the amount of time that people have to do that, that depends on the, the job you have and the amount of responsibilities you have. Um, there is some research from, um, his name is Andrew Shabilsky. It's very hard to spell. I'll, I'll, I'll send you a link later. <laughs> um, and he, he kind of outlines it very easily. It's about three to four hours per day, he found, tends to be the, the point where, we're not saying that it's good or bad, but at the point where it inevitably starts taking over other parts of your life. So if you're, if you're going, if you're working full time or you're going to school and then you come home and you're playing X amount of hours, did you also have time to eat? Did you have time to, are you sleeping enough now? Um, did you take a shower? Like once you, once all those other things are out of the way, then your free time is your free time. Whether you're playing video games or reading or meditating or, well, I mean, meditating, I don't know. That's probably more controversial to say that, but as long as your everything else gets done, your free time is your free time. Do what you will. That's, that's, uh, that's pretty much as far as I like to go with it because every case is different. But just playing for a couple hours every day, we, we don't have proof that it's, that it's a negative thing. That is not necessarily an addiction. And at least part of the conversations that, that I like to have also around this is, you know, why is someone gravitating towards video games versus something else? And it's probably because the video game experience is better than whatever else is going on. Your job sucks. Um, things at home aren't great. Um, you live in a community that's not um, safe or comfortable. People aren't treating you well. Then that seems like a better alternative and people are going towards that. Those are the kind of conversations that we have to have. Not, you know, are they playing too much, but why are they playing in the first place? Are they playing to take a break, you know, from things that are going on in their lives? Are, or are they going there to avoid everything else in their life? And, and those are two very different things. So are there, are there types of games that are maybe better than others in terms of avoiding negative habits and building, building positive habits or getting the positive uh, benefits of video games? Um, it, depends on the, it depends on the effect. Because a game that is a single-player campaign versus a game that is multiplayer, there's obviously an advantage um, in terms of social, right? A social advantage to a game that's multiplayer. But at the same time, I mean, maybe you could be chatting with your friends while you're playing a single-player game. You could be very involved in um, 
in, in forums or in fan activities related to that. So, I mean, those conversations are, you know, it depends, it depends on the advantage. Just like saying, you know, there aren't really games that make you smarter. <laughs> there are only games that make you better at doing whatever you're doing in the game. So I don't know if anyone has done any research that says, oh, definitely the best type of game you need to play are, you know, match three puzzle games. Those are, those are the tops. I don't think that that's, that's the case because everybody has a preference. You know, some people, like, I like to play my games on easy mode. I like a good story. I like exploration. And some people want to play Dark Souls and play something that is very, very difficult um, or has a high challenge where the stakes are, are much higher. And, and they find that fun. Or like, I don't play horror games, but some people love horror games. Um, so it depends really on what the person gets out of it, whether or not they are getting a positive effect from it. Hmm. I wish I had yeah, a better answer on that. I wish we knew. <laughs> yeah, I've heard some research or, or maybe it's just observations that's playing, for instance, playing competitive games against strangers, like if it's online, has a stronger tendency to produce kind of antisocial reactions. I don't know if that's all the correct terminology. Basically, the idea is that, you know, the anonymity and the separation and stuff like that kind of helps spur on the kind of toxic behavior that can definitely be observed in some online games, whereas that kind of behavior is much less common in cooperative games and in particular games that you're playing with people that you know. And I guess I was just wondering if you had any thoughts along those lines. Yeah, so so that conversation around, usually the word that's thrown around on research like this is aggression, right? Like, oh, this type of game increases aggression. Well, aggression doesn't mean being violent. Aggression doesn't mean being, um, you know, going out and punching somebody in the face. It means that at that moment during the game and shortly after, you might have elevated heart rate, you might feel angrier, but it doesn't necessarily spill over into your day-to-day. It doesn't make you a more aggressive person overall, necessarily. And, you know, we can measure different types of games and the different effects that they, that they have. But the conversation around violence and aggression in games is, is very complicated because, especially recently, there have been, um, you know, we've, we've seen research that where the, the, the researcher obviously had an agenda where they wanted to prove how a particular game was making people, you know, worse in some capacity. And again, that's, it's more complicated. There are way more variables in a person's life than the game that they're playing. And, but aggression is one thing that you can um, measure immediately during and after a game. Um, but once you come back and measure it, you know, with more time afterwards, those effects are, are gone. <laughs> the shows you have have a lot of really interesting topics about geek culture and technology and stuff like that. The one that I think the listeners of this show will be particularly interested in is uh, Headshots, which is about psychology and video games. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, that show? Sure. So I host that show with my co-host, Kelly Dunlap. She is she has a clinical PsyD, so she has a doctorate in clinical psychology, and she also has a master's degree in game design, which she completed while we were recording the show, actually. Um, 
And we started a show a few years ago called PsychTech, which was specifically talking about new things in technology and the human behavior, mental health issues that surround them. So because we're both huge gamers, we, we talked probably too much about video games during PsychTech. So we, we spun off our video game talks into their own show. Um, for example, we did three episodes, four, three or four episodes on Jay McGonigal's book, Super Better. And, and that's the type of thing that, that we really like. So some of the themes that I've liked to, that, that I've touched upon so far, for example, our latest episode was on Zelda Breath of the Wild and the psychology, uh, psychological state of flow, which is that sweet spot when you're in the zone, when you're right between, uh, something being, you know, right within your skill level. But just, but still a little challenging. It's that sweet spot that makes you want to keep going and feels really, really good to be in. Um, so we, we had a whole conversation about that. We talked about positivity in Overwatch, for example. Well, we did a really fun episode recently about kissing games. There's a whole genre of games where pretty much all you do is kiss in them. Um, so, so we like to talk about, again, human behavior, psychology concepts, mental health concepts in video games and. Uh, it's it's I, I enjoy it a lot because uh, I get to have conversations like this. You know, I think a lot about to me, games aren't just games. You know, there are experiences there. And there are also messages that the designers are, are trying to convey. And there are also experiences that are being created. And I'm interested in in how those experiences were created and what effect they have on us and what ideas they're they're portraying. Yeah, I really appreciate headshots because it's a really unique mix of kind of expertise on mental health practitioners and kind of the world of academia and game design and all of that mixed into one. The combination of the experiences together is really interesting and really unique. And we try to stay away from big words and and we don't <laughs> we, we, we don't want it to sound like a research paper and, and it never has. You know, it's we're we're people who play video games who we who we love them. And we, we love to think about them. We love to talk about them. And the other things that we, you know, we're experts in, we feel like we have an expertise in video games and we're experts in, again, psychology and mental health. So, so we talk about them in a way that I feel is fun and approachable and essentially just makes you think about video games, hopefully in a, in a different way. Yeah. So, yeah, I encourage all listeners to, to check it out. Definitely covers a lot of similar topics as this show. And then even more, and they they're talking about stuff they have expertise on, you know, whereas I don't have expertise on anything, so uh it's a great it really is a great show, and you know I've talked to you a lot about video games today, but with geek therapy, you have a whole other range of topics you talk about with you know everything from including comic books and superheroes and Star Wars and all of the ideas around mental health discussing them from from that lens and introducing them into counseling and stuff like that. So I definitely encourage everyone to check out all the shows on the Geek Therapy Network. I mean, I discovered it about a month ago, and I still haven't listened to all the shows, all the episodes that I bookmarked between those um, five or six shows. There's just so many good ones. But uh, yeah, I definitely highly encourage checking those out. So I think that's that's all we have. I feel like we could definitely keep talking, but uh, I think for today, this is a good stopping point. So um, this way, how can listeners find out uh, more about you and uh, follow your work? 
Sure. So um, you can listen to Headshots at headshotspodcast.com or just look it up on your podcatcher of choice. Um, you can find all the shows on the Geek Therapy Network by looking up Geek Therapy um, wherever podcasts are available or going to geektherapy.com and find information about all of them. And we're pretty active on Twitter. We post everything on Facebook. So just uh, look for Geek Therapy in, in any of those places. And then you can find me on Twitter at Josue A. Cardona. That's J-O-S-U-E-A-C-A-R-D-O-N-A. Well, great. Thank you so much, Josue, for, for being on the show. Thanks again for having me. It was a lot of fun. This show is about how games impact people. and It's encouraging to hear about games being used as a tool to improve people's lives. A few years ago, I would have thought it was a joke that a therapist would recommend playing video games, but now that is exactly what's happening, and from the sound of it, it's going to happen more and more. As an aside, I would encourage anyone listening who might be having some difficulties to get the help they need and reach out and not be afraid to be judged. I'll be honest, there were times in my life that I was having troubles and I didn't get help because I was prideful and because I didn't think anyone would look past my gaming habit and my and my oddities and didn't think that people would understand. But now is the best time ever for geeks and gamers to find someone who they can relate to and get well-informed help. And that wraps up another intelligence boost for you. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, clicking the magic button on your podcast app. Or if you go to plus7intelligence.com, I have quick links to subscribe in a variety of ways. If you're ever in doubt, you can call for backup on Twitter at 7 underscore intelligence. We have come to the end of the first day's episodes, but as a special treat for my first listeners, I am delivering a bonus episode later this week. So stay tuned for that, and I'll talk to you then. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.